<laughs> so I work because I work at agriculture. Um, I have a unique perspective on this. And I'm going to say something that's so I'm going to phrase um, what I do in a very uncomfortable way just to spark discussion. But, you know, I work in pest control and in order for society to function, um, things have to die. So here's where we start that discussion. If you have any uncertainty about whether this last statement is true, you're not alone. But whether or not you accept that humans have to kill other animals in order for society to function, the ways we choose to live our lives will impact countless other living beings. And that makes me wonder about some of our other uncertainties. Like which of these beings suffer? What are their natural lives and death like? And how does what we don't know about other species affect the way we treat them? In this episode, we'll try to get closer to the answers of these questions. That being said, by the end of this episode, it's safe to say I feel less certain about a lot of things than I did at the beginning. I'm Maya Pearl, and you're listening to Wildness. Wildness is a podcast about the experiences of animals living in the wild, and the people who are working to help make those experiences better. I'm making this podcast in conjunction with Wild Animal Initiative to work towards a better understanding of wild animal welfare. Wild Animal Initiative is a nonprofit that works to research, raise awareness, and reduce the suffering of animals. Support this podcast and other projects at wildanimalinitiative.org slash donate. Hi, um, my name is Joe Ballinger, and I am one-third of the website Ask an Entomologist, with the other two people on the website being Joan King and Nancy Miarelli. My background is in insect physiology, and I, a lot of the stuff that I do is in agriculture, so I'm an agricultural biologist. Um, Maya invited me on today to talk about some insect things, and I am very happy to be here. Cool. Um, how long have you been working with insects? So I've been interested in insects ever since I was a kid, and... I've been working with them for probably about a little over 10 years, depending on if you include my undergrad research and grad research. So uh, I went to University of Georgia for grad school and studied parasitic wasps. And then I worked at the USDA doing some biocontrol stuff. And then uh, some of my interest in biotechnology brought me to Monsanto and then it later turned into Bayer. So um, that is a a conflict of interest statement, by the way. I have worked uh, in industry developing pesticides. So, um, you know, uh, keep that in mind when I talk about some of these topics. I actually found Joe by reading an article he wrote for his website, askanentomologist.com. So in this article, he's talking about whether or not insects can feel pain. And what really caught my attention was that at the end of the article, he reveals that while writing it, he actually changed his mind on the subject. 
which I thought was really cool because I am at this very moment working on this podcast where I'm allowing myself to sort of learn more and see in what ways my own mind might be changed about wild animals in our world. So I kind of wanted to find out more about what changed his mind. Along with examining the uncertainty that comes with studying an animal that is very different from us, an insect. I'd love to hear your about your experience answering the question for ask entomologists because you mentioned it was kind of like a rare occasion where you go in having a pretty strong opinion and then the research you do to provide a good answer actually leads you to feel a lot less confident in that. Yeah, so I guess I should start with kind of a history of me in this question. Um, so a lot of entomologists know each other because we all have similar interests. Most of us went to school to one another. And I happen to know a lot of other entomologists on social media. It's just sort of something that we like to argue about um, as a um, kind of philosophical discussion. How, how closely do insects, um, how closely do their experiences resemble ours? So Joe likes to chat online with these other entomologists. Sometimes he sees them at conferences and they continue the conversation. He's just genuinely interested in thinking about this stuff. And for a long time, he's felt pretty certain about some things. Typically, what I've argued in the past is the position that insects can't feel pain. And uh, I sort of now feel the uh, uh, correct perspective on that is a little bit more of an agnostic. It's more plausible sort of situation. I'm curious about that sort of transformation, just because one of the things that I am personally really interested in is how we kind of, how we come up with our beliefs, how we like land on a belief or a moral standing or things like that and, and whether those change and like when they do, is that, is that rare and, and how does that happen? Um, so I, I, this is something we definitely have in common because um, I'm a, I'm sort of what I refer to as a public figure scientist, and we talk about a lot of scientific controversy, controversies, and we want people to um, accept science. I mean, we have a lot of issues right now. So with vaccines, for example, we have a lot of outbreaks because people don't trust the healthcare system for various reasons, some valid, some not. But um, yeah, so this is something that's really important to me as well. So one of the things that I guess I should um, mention to put this post into a little bit more context, it had been a few years since I had actually read up on the topic. So I wanted to see what new research was out there in the realm of biology. When he started looking into some of the more recent research about insects and what they experience, he found one paper in particular that really interested him. It was about a gene called white, which occurs in Drosophila or fruit flies. By the way, you can find a link to this paper on our website if you want to read it yourself. The gene is called white because it affects eye color, and fruit flies with the white gene have white eyes. But it also has other effects. The thing about this gene, which I didn't know beforehand, was it's also involved in panic disorders in humans. So it's a gene that in people can make them feel emotional responses that are way, way too heightened for the situation. And in flies, what it appears to do is to influence how negatively the fly interprets a memory. So 
let's say they were in a kind of bad situation, you know, they got some kind of bad food that was colored red, uh, it would take them a shorter amount of time to learn to avoid the red diet than it would another fly. So it doesn't really change how they respond to positive stimuli, but it can affect how they respond to negative stimuli. The flies with the white gene will remember not to go anywhere near that bad food more quickly than others will. And to me, what that shows is that flies um, don't necessarily have a one-size-fits-all response to bad situations. They can, um, to some degree, uh, interpret different degrees of situation, uh, which is something that I had not previously realized at least not to the extent that was shown in that paper. At first glance, this may not sound like super mind-blowing news, but for Joe, it's kind of huge, because this was challenging a belief that up until then, he had felt pretty certain about, and he had felt like science supported this belief too. He'd been studying insects for pretty much his whole life, and to really understand what a leap it is for him to reevaluate whether insects can feel pain, you have to know a little bit more about him and his relationship to insects. I mean, I love insects. Uh, they're, you know, collectively, they're my, <laughs> they're my favorite animals. Have you had any personal experiences in your life that sort of led you to be interested in insects specifically? So when I was, oh, about six or so, I went through a bug phase, like pretty much every little kid does. Uh, and I was trying to rear caterpillars in my garage and, or I was trying to rear caterpillars. My parents made me keep them in the garage. And I saw that I typically got wasps or flies more than moths and butterflies. And I knew that that's not what you were supposed to get. And I also knew that those insects were coming from inside the animals that I was rearing. And as I got older, um, I got really, really interested in this because so these animals, um, they live in one of the harshest environments on earth. You know, we know that there are little critters that live around hot um, volcanic uh, openings in the very deep sea. And um, occasionally you hear a story about somebody falling into a lake at Yellowstone and dying instantly. And there's bacteria and insects that live there. Um, and the thing that really interested me about these wasps is that um, you know, those environments that I just talked about, those are passively hostile. So the environment doesn't really care what's in there or not. But these wasps, um, they live in an environment that is actively trying to kill them. These insects have an immune system that's evolved to take care of pathogens. And as my career went on, I realized that I was interested in these sorts of animals, these sorts of animals that have adapted to um, environments that don't want them there, and that includes uh, parasites as well as things in agriculture. And eventually Joe started working in agriculture, and some of the work he's done has been developing pesticides, and basically trying to figure out the best ways to kill these insects that are so good at adapting to hostile environments. So his love for insects ended up leading him down this path that I imagine would make it pretty difficult to entertain ideas about insects being able to feel pain. And the other part of this, which is sort of the elephant in the room at this point, is that an insect is not very much like a person. They are an animal, and they have a nervous system, but it looks much different than ours. And this is part of what makes our understanding of them so uncertain. 
And maybe before we get to that, we should talk about the even more basic question of what it even means to feel pain. I guess we should start kind of at the very, very high philosophical level, because first we have to be able to define something before we can talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when you think about um, pain, injury, and suffering, it's, they're obviously related, but when you start to think about it, the relationships become a lot less clear. So for example, I suffer from depression, so I'm always suffering, even though I'm not necessarily in pain. Uh, when we talk about um, response to injury, there, there are ways that you can respond to injury without necessarily feeling pain. And when we talk about uh, uh, pain, you know, there's also like idiopathic pain, stuff that happens without injury. And when you try to weave them back together, um, it, there are certain things that don't fit. So for example, like bacteria can move away from a high concentration of antibiotic, you know, even though they're very, very simple organisms. So the definition that I really like, um, in which I kind of modify is the International Society for the Study of Pain's definition, and that is a response to an injury that invokes an emotional reaction, or as I like to think of it, a negative emotional reaction. Of course, not everyone cites the same definition of pain. For some, the definition of pain is centered more around consciousness and behavioral response. Here's Hollis Howe, a near-term interventions researcher for Wild Animal Initiative, explaining the difference between pain and nociception from his perspective. Um, so nociception is a term that refers to uh, basically the pre-pain transmission of aversive stimuli signals. So if, for instance, if you touch a hot pan, uh, your reflexes will cause you to withdraw your hand before the pain signal reaches your brain. Um, or if you are entirely unconscious uh, and unresponsive, you can still have signals sent from a site of potential injury without them resulting in a pain experience in your brain. So the basic difference is a nociception is transmission of these signals telling you that something is happening that could be potentially harmful. And pain is the conscious experience of receiving, organizing, responding to, et cetera, those signals. So because nociception can occur in an individual and can cause a reflex without them having a conscious experience, it's difficult to be sure whether or not insects do feel pain. So for insects, a lot of their cognitive abilities happen in their head, but the reactions to, to certain situations seem to be stored elsewhere in the body, most likely in the um, ganglia that sort of control the motion of the legs. So with insects, it seems like um, reflex arcs are a very important way that they kind of navigate the world because it's, it's just more efficient. If you don't have to process stuff, if you can just react in an appropriate manner um, without having to sort of realize, hey, this situation sucks, um, it, it just ends up being quicker. So that's sort of um, the physiological basis behind some of the skepticism. So kind of the theory is that they would have this reaction without the information being processed because the information wasn't going towards the center or the, the area of their nerves that's in their head. 
Yeah, and this this area is called um, a mushroom body. That's kind of where the cognitive capacity of insects is. I think a lot of people think of the trait of consciousness as being exclusive to vertebrates with a central nervous system and a peripheral nervous system and something more resembling a brain. Um, insects are invertebrates, and they do have a, a centralized, uh, like, ganglion that um, does a lot of their behavioral processing. Um, but they are, I would say, like, their peripheral nervous system is more autonomous than like what we're used to thinking of in in conscious animals like mammals. But how much do we really understand about brains and nervous systems that don't look or function much like ours do? An octopus is a really good example of uh, an invertebrate that I think a lot of people are coming around to the idea that they are probably sentient, but do not have identical nervous structures to mammals. Um, and so we're having to like reshape kind of what physical correlates we think are associated with consciousness. Um, and one direction that people are going is uh, more of the behavioral outputs that an organism shows. So um, we don't know exactly how uh, consciousness arises from like neural connections. Um, and that's something that we may not know ever, if not for a very long time in the future. But one way that we estimate whether or not an organism is conscious is how complex their behaviors are, uh, how plastic they are, like how well their behaviors are uh, responsive to their environments. Sort of like those fruit flies, who, as Joe put it, don't have a one-size-fits-all response to bad situations. But if we use behavior as the criteria to determine whether an animal is conscious or whether they can feel pain, how can we tell the difference between pain and nociception? What if their experiences and behaviors are just very different from ours? To me, it seems like if you have enough evidence to support the idea of nociception in an organism, the best thing to do moving forward is to assume that that nociception is resulting in a painful experience. Um, nociception involves a rather complex nervous system generally in the broad scheme of things. Um, and I think that many organisms that are nociceptive should be considered to experience pain based on the behaviors that they exhibit as a result of that nociception. But again, this comes down to an issue of you can't really tell what's going on in anyone else's mind. Um, you can't even tell if anyone else has a mind. And I think we've been unfairly erring on the side of saying that these organisms do not have minds and are not capable of experiencing pain, for instance. Um, whereas I don't think we have any good evidence for that. Like, I don't have great evidence, um, aside from intuition and, like, the similarity between us that you are sentient. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not. And I think it's prudent to assume that a lot of nociceptive individuals are also capable of experiencing pain. My own understanding is that our uncertainty runs deep. For some things in day-to-day -day life, we sort of have to rely on an intuition or an assumption. Otherwise, Hollis wouldn't have any reason to believe that I or anyone else was sentient. But how far is it reasonable to take these assumptions? And how much evidence do we need before we update them? Mariana von der Werf is a contributing writer for Nature Ethics and has worked with several animal welfare organizations. When I talked with Mariana, she emphasized the complexity behind our general cluelessness in terms of the consequences of our actions. 
So how I understand it is whether we are completely clueless about any of the of the total impact of our actions is still a topic of philosophical debate. And if we are completely clueless, then it doesn't matter what we do, because if we think that the positive and the, the negative unforeseen consequences are equally likely, then we could say that they cancel each other out. So one view is that for many actions, the good and the bad option would be equally likely to happen and cancel each other out. But for some other actions, this is not the case. And even if we would be clueless right now, by getting more information about a topic, we can learn whether this action is uh, positive or negative. So an example of this first case where the, the unforeseen consequences kind of cancel each other out is if you are in the grocery store and you're in line and you're deciding whether to buy an extra package of gum or not. If you decide to buy the gum, this makes the person waiting behind you in line, it makes them wait uh, a few seconds longer. So if they go home a few seconds later, and if they would be conceiving a child later that day, the genetics of this child would be completely different. And this effect on the life of this child and on the impact that this child will have on the world is much larger than whether we eat gum that day. But we don't have any reason to believe that this big impact that it will have on the life of this child is either positive or negative. So therefore they cancel each other out. And we only need to consider in this situation whether we want to buy this gum or not. And you can imagine that there are so many of these instances through everything that we do that it could make us completely clueless about basically everything. Brian Tomasic, who co-founded the Foundational Research Institute and has written extensively on reducing the suffering of wild animals, suggests that this issue of cluelessness is one of the most important considerations when it comes to wild animal welfare. He described to me how it can show up even as we try to address something as seemingly simple as stopping our pet cats from eating birds and other wildlife. In terms of direct effects, it seems good to prevent cats from preying on small animals outdoors, since cats can kill so many small animals, often in horrifying ways. However, some of the small animals that cats kill are omnivores that eat lots of insects. For example, some individual birds can eat hundreds or thousands of insects per day. So it's possible that reducing cat predation would actually increase total predation. Of course, maybe if there were fewer birds, other animals like spiders would prey on insects instead. Also, maybe it's actually good to have more predation on insects in order to reduce total insect populations and therefore the total number of insects born. But if so, maybe cat predation on small mammals reduces total suffering by small mammals for the same reason, and so on. The number of considerations rapidly explodes, and there doesn't seem to be any obvious direction in which most of the arguments point. So on top of the more obvious difficulties of figuring out what pain is and who experiences it, now we get to this really nebulous problem of never truly being able to understand what the consequences of our actions are in the long run. And so even if we do want every decision we make to be guided by whatever those ultimate consequences are, we can't really go about our daily lives acting like we're clueless about everything. Mariana doesn't make the situation sound quite so hopeless, though. I think in the long term, a project like this has a positive impact because it shows that we care about 
the reduction of predation, it will expand our moral circle to include birds eaten by cats. And if we think that it is bad that insects get eaten by birds, I think we should have a better project for that than to let cats eat the birds. There are probably ways in which we can do that that do not promote harm done to birds. She seems to think we can reason through this and other uncertainties with more research, as long as we're conscious of the uncertainty we have. So I think in wild animal welfare, because it is such a new field and because we haven't been thinking about this for a long time, very little research has been done yet. I think it's especially important to acknowledge our uncertainty in these things because people often misinterpret welfare biology as being arrogant or playing God. But the field of welfare biology is not advocating for making these big changes in the ecosystem, but we're very aware of how uncertain we are about all these things. Uh, so rather it is mainly concerned with doing more research and decreasing this uncertainty. There are a lot of possibilities for new research to be done in the realm of welfare biology. And at this point, it sounds like every new bit of research could make a big difference in terms of our level of uncertainty. So for instance, I haven't encountered any research looking into how insects may modify their behavior in areas of higher or lower risk of predation. It may be out there, um, but sort of landscape of fear research, fear ecology is something we look at for um, the well-being of mammals and how they move through the world. So um, we look for correlates of what we would call like anxiety or fear in a mouse in an area where they know that there are foxes present versus in an area where they are, haven't been foxes for 30 years. And so the mice are relatively assured that they are not going to be preyed upon. Um, I don't know if there's research like that for insects. It would be really interesting to see if we could do some of that research. I think welfare biology is asking the question, how can we give animals what they really need? And how can we find out what that is in the first place? I think there are lots of things that are good about nature, but some natural things are also bad for individuals. And then I'm thinking about things like floods or other natural disasters that could destroy our homes or having an infection, then we would like to see a doctor. So humans protect themselves really from these natural sources of suffering. And I think what welfare biology is doing is extending that protection to other, to members of other species, which of course makes the situation much more complicated because when you were helping one species, it also has consequences for many other species that are in relation to them. So this is why many people at this point think that the situation is too complicated and there is nothing we can do to have a positive effect on wild animals. And welfare biologists are kind of saying, well, if there is something we can do, it will be really worth finding out what that is. So it's really important to ask these questions, even if we're uncertain about how much we can actually do. Aside from doing more research, Mariana says we need to be aware of our own biases and how they relate to society's biases in general. When an ethical question has no certain answer, we might end up relying on our intuition to guide us through the day. But we should at least think critically about where our intuitions are coming from. 
if you think that fishes and insects would not be morally relevant, it is likely for you to believe that because that is kind of the way that society views these individuals. And of course, there could be good reasons for this. But in this case, I think it is mostly a bias towards individuals that do not look like us. I suspect there are several reasons why humans don't care much about insects. Perhaps one of the main reasons is just size. If we imagine a grasshopper that was the size of a cat, I expect people would sympathize more easily with it, even if it had the exact same level of intelligence as a regular grasshopper. Both Mariana and Brian also suggested that for many people, it might just feel too hard to care about insects, because we see killing them as a necessary part of life. We kill insects on a daily basis, either deliberately because people think insects are annoying or harmful or they're scared of them, or we do it accidentally when we're driving in our car. There are so many insects that will be killed by just our car and our windshields. So we are incentivized to believe in that sense that they cannot suffer, otherwise we would just feel too guilty. I think we can care about insects while still accept that we accidentally kill many of them. Although ideally, of course, I would like there to be general in society more concern for insects. But I think this uh, enormity of this problem is what makes people feel put off by it. The fact that some insects are pests to humans may also reduce concern for insects. The same seems to be true for pest rodents like rats. It creates cognitive dissonance to care about the welfare of an animal while also killing it to remove it from your home. They don't show pain in the same way that we do. They're not as charismatic as larger animals. And I think this is also a reason that makes humans think that they're not relevant or maybe that they cannot even suffer. We call insects things like creepy crawlies and pests, insinuating that they're sneaking around, maybe even knowingly doing nasty things to bother us. But I don't think most of us really believe that. It's kind of hard to anthropomorphize an insect, because let's face it, they'd be pretty strange humans. And a lot of people would probably think that's a good thing, because they're not people. But I do wonder to what extent anthropomorphism is our main avenue towards caring about other animals, and recognizing their ability to have experiences. I've also wondered if an intuitive fear towards insects, as the type of animal that has been more successful than most at causing us harm, through things like the spread of disease or making off with our food, prevents us from treating them morally. But the intuition that insects are not morally important doesn't come naturally to everyone. For Mariana, insects have always seemed able to suffer and worth caring for. Yeah, I think when I was a kid and we would go on holidays with my friends, we would often go swimming outside. And when you go swimming outside, there are you see so many insects being caught in the water. I assume this happens everywhere, not, of course, not just where people are swimming, but uh, we would play this game of playing lifeguards for these insects and try to get them on dry land again. And I still do that when I'm swimming outside or when I'm walking along a pond. I think these kinds of things really show that something that is so small for us can have a really big impact on someone's life, on the life of an insect who is drowning. I also think that if I wouldn't help those insects, then probably the next person who would came around probably also wouldn't help them either. As an adult, Mariana became involved in effective altruism through her work in animal welfare. 
and found herself again in the position to lead by example. If she didn't do anything to stop wild animal suffering, who would? Hollis shared a similar experience with me. I was a dinosaur kid, um, and I grew up into a dinosaur adult. <laughs> At some point, I realized that um, paleontology wasn't maybe the best trajectory for me, and I sort of switched gears to general biology. Uh, insects are definitely a new focus for me. Um, the stuff I did in the past, my studies were mostly on uh, ecosystem level processes uh, and conservation biology and how humans interact with their natural environment. And my research experience was mostly in neurobiology, genetics, and behavior. Uh, I worked with zebrafish for a few years and mostly larval zebrafish. And so I did sort of get a window into simple minds and how they work uh, at the level of like habituation learning, et cetera. I see a lot of parallels between that and some of the research that I have been looking into with insects. During this stage of their lives, the larval zebrafish in the lab where Hollis was working were treated as invertebrates. He says the fish were adapting to changes in their environment and responding to noises, bright lights, and sudden darkness. Things that might imply a predator was approaching and instigate escape behaviors. He doesn't know if the fish were in pain, but he felt strongly that the stimuli was at least making them uncomfortable. I don't think the life of a larval zebrafish is very complex. Um, or that they have a deep and intricate internal life. But I do think that they were and are capable of, you know, having interests and interests that could be frustrated or things that could be done to them that are contrary to their interests, um, like self-preservation. Doing that research, I became increasingly uncomfortable with it over the years. And I don't think it's as egregious as much of the research that's done on non-human animals, but yeah, it certainly like informed my decision to not continue in traditional biology research um, and affected like decisions about whether or not I want to pursue graduate school right now, things like that. Yeah, wow. That's really interesting. How did you become interested in wild animal welfare in the first place? So a uh, few friends from my local effective altruism and like animal advocacy spheres encouraged me to apply to work in wild animal welfare. Uh, they said they were sort of lacking in people who could devote all of their energy full time uh, with a biology background to this study. Um, and it was something that I was really interested in. It uh, connected with me at a moral level uh, where other biology research didn't. Um, it suited my interests, and I liked that I could be part of something that was new, that was arising. Hollis had a hard time working with fish in the lab, while Joe's work, which involved killing insects, doesn't seem to have really phased him. For Joe, it seems like killing insects was just necessary to complete the work he had to do, while Hollis could see the potential for animals in captivity to live much better lives. Um, yeah, that was actually uh, uh, my last job. Did it feel difficult for you at any point? Um, not really, uh, because um, it's sort of it's sort of work, right? And so one of the things about entomology is that we overrear, um, which means that we're not necessarily sure how many tests we're going to be doing that day, so we just have a lot of insects. So I think that life in a captive environment has the potential to be much nicer for an insect than life in the wild. 
it's definitely easier to provide the space enrichment and like nutrition required for living a good life in captivity to an insect than to a tiger. And I think in a humane captive environment, there is limited or no risk of dying from predation, parasitism, any of the other natural causes of death that are probably quite painful um, for an insect in the wild. Um, just to give you an idea of some of the numbers of insects that we're dealing with, I mean, it's not uncommon to kill a million insects a day. Uh, the problem is that most research institutions have few or no guidelines for the humane treatment of captive insects. Um, so while it does have the potential to be better than a life in the wild, I am not at all sure that it is. Um, insects are commonly used in research and are often subjected to really painful treatment and inhumane killing. If they are capable of feeling pain, there's a lot of practices that should be adapted or restricted. A lot of entomologists that wouldn't go so far as to say that insects are sentient still advocate for a precautionary principle in this case. Like Jeff Lockwood, for instance, um, and a few other entomologists encourage the use of anesthesia um, or euthanasia before dissecting insects. Just because if it is the case that insects are sentient, however likely you may think that to be, uh, it would be a really egregious wrong, all the things that are happening to insects and what kind of lives and suffering they are experiencing. But, I mean, these, these are insects that are, you know, these are insects that are in the wild, they're pest species, and they're also very highly prolific. So, I mean, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. And while Joe's description of killing a million insects a day in the lab was pretty shocking to me, I've also been sort of taken aback by descriptions of what an insect's life in the wild could look like. Basically, however many insects there are, like millions and millions and millions more are produced that do not survive to adulthood, far more than are needed for replacement of the existing population, uh, which implies that they're dying at a young age. They don't have time to accrue positive experiences that may outweigh the negative experiences of their deaths. I mean, nature's pretty brutal. I mean, in, in human society, it's it's pretty much expected for children to outlive their parents, right? Right. But with insects, if 1% of your offspring make it to adulthood, you're doing pretty good. Brian told me about when he first considered the level of suffering insects might be experiencing all around him, even in his own house. For example, my basement was full of spider webs. Previously, I hadn't thought much about spider webs other than to appreciate how they helped to reduce the number of annoying insects in the house. But after realizing that insects caught in spider webs might suffer terribly as they died, the situation began to seem somewhat horrifying. On some roads and sidewalks, when it rains, earthworms and slugs come out in droves. Unfortunately, many people walking on the sidewalk don't look out for these invertebrates and step on them and people driving can't really see or avoid these animals. So during and after a rainstorm, I would often see tens or maybe even a hundred injured invertebrates on pavement, which made me very sad. So if you do think insects can feel pain, what lengths do you go to in order to avoid hurting them? And if you're not sure if they feel pain or not, how much do you err on the side of caution? I try to avoid injuring insects in my daily life. For example, I usually refrain from walking on grass or in the woods to reduce the risk of stepping on bugs. However, most of the insects that we have an impact on are distant from us. 
such as those on crop fields or in the wilderness. Yeah, and it's so on an individual level, you know, I don't on an individual level, it's not like I'm going to go out of my way to step on an insect or anything like that. And um, part of it's kind of that doubt over, you know, the pain issue. But the other thing is, you know, there, there's something that's living. And if I don't need to harm it, there's no reason for me to harm it. So this is something that I think most of us do uh, without really thinking it through or actually reasoning with ourselves whether or not we believe that an insect is capable of experiencing pain or suffering. Um, but we frown upon frying ants with a magnifying glass. You know, it's a classic bully trope in movies. Um, and I think because of that, like my day-to-day -day interactions with insects haven't changed all that much. I think seeing injured invertebrates up close helps make the topic of invertebrate suffering more emotionally powerful but it's important not just to focus on a few invertebrates injured by humans in immediately visible ways. We should use those examples as inspiration to also care about the vastly greater numbers of invertebrates suffering from natural causes out of sight. Um, I do feel like I've kind of seen like a window open into the world. Like when I'm driving past a cornfield, I'm imagining all the invertebrates that are involved in that cornfield. Um, <laughs> and what their lives are like and how they're going to be affected by harvesting and how if we had fewer acres of land devoted to this corn that's destined to be dairy forage, um, like how fewer invertebrates may be impacted directly by human activities. We do end up impacting many invertebrates directly by devoting so much land to specific crops. And we also impact their lives very intentionally through the use of pesticides to keep them from harming those crops. You know, when you take a prairie that has thousands of plant species and turn it into corn, um, that's only one species. And it's, you know, there's, there's not a lot that can live there. And if you look at a map of the most photosynthetically active areas in the world, Iowa, which, you know, most of the state is covered in corn, um, is more photosynthetically active than the Brazilian rainforest because there's so much corn. So, you know, even though our pest control measures are um, getting, I mean, objectively they are getting better and they are getting more environmentally friendly over time. I mean, just the sheer habitat destruction makes it hard for a lot of stuff to, uh, to live. But is pest control objectively getting better? Hollis says that while he thinks there are many promising new methods to look into, some of the commonly used pesticides and alternatives to pesticides may not reduce insect suffering. Unfortunately, a lot of the more organic or like forward-thinking methods that are fighting against this increasing problem of insecticide resistance are they're under the integrated pest management model, um, which can mean rotating through different insecticides to prevent resistance arising, um, but it also popularly means using natural predators. Um, such as ladybugs, um, to release into fields to kill insects that are causing problems for crop farmers. And I'm not convinced that that is a better death than insecticide, um, not because I think that it definitely is worse to die by predation than insecticide, but because I don't think we have information to say either way. 
Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about the research being done on creating humane insecticides or mm-hmm. alternatives? Um, so the focus of the research that Wild Animal Initiative is doing right now is intentionally very narrow. We're trying to find the simplest, best answer with the least number of externalities involved. Uh, so right now what we're looking at is what is the fastest acting and potentially least painful insecticide that is already used and should we advocate for that to be used over other methods. Joe says that so far humane insecticide options haven't seemed like a priority, mainly because developing new pesticides is already a constant struggle. Insects do evolve rapidly, Um, so um, when pyrethroids were introduced, and that's a kind of pesticide, in the 1980s, there were populations of Colorado potato beetle that were resistant to them within two years. Wow. In pesticide development, um, the sort of main concern is whether or not it works, because making a pesticide is harder than a lot of people think. And the reason why it's so hard to make a pesticide is because you have to hit a vital system. You have to hit the slowest enzyme in a vital system. And to make a new pesticide, you have to do it in, um, you either have to hit a different system or the same enzyme in a completely new way. And there's only so many ways that we can do that. Um, At the same time, insects evolve, as, as I said earlier, insects evolve very, very quickly. So um, pesticides are are a, a finite resource. And I don't want that to be interpreted as we're running out or anything like that. But um, we, um, you know, we're getting a new mode of action, I think, roughly every 10 years or so for entomology. Um, so, you know, we kind of have to um, just kind of stick with what works, unfortunately. And this is why people are moving towards organophosphates because of the high resistance that arose in the past. Um, But again, like a lot of people rotate through different classes of insecticides with different modes of action to avoid local populations developing resistance. But it's an ongoing struggle. The way a pesticide works to kill an insect is called its mode of action. Generally, pesticides have one main mode of action. Organophosphates, for instance, are a nerve agent, meaning that they work by disrupting an enzyme involved in the nervous system. This type of insecticide is toxic to other animals as well, including humans. One common application of organophosphates is to combat mosquito-borne diseases by killing mosquitoes. Which brings up the next question. How should we weigh our own interests against the interests of insects when they're conflicting? You know, it's sort of, it's sort of hard to worry about the suffering of mosquitoes when there's a malaria epidemic going on. And, it's I'm not saying that like as a trump card or anything like that. It's just a very different um, ethical philosophy. We're very confident that other humans are sentient, and we see the immense suffering that is caused by diseases that are transmitted by insects. Yeah, I think it's well-being and suffering that matters in general, and not who are the ones who are experiencing it. So if an insect is able to suffer just as much as a human, then I think their experiences matter equally. But this turns the question into who is able to experience well-being and suffering. Personally, I think a single insect is less morally significant than a single vertebrate animal because insects are less cognitively sophisticated. But insects make up such a large part of 
individuals in the wild and there's there are so many of them at this point we don't have a very good idea of how many individual insects there are in the world we just know there are a lot i think one estimate was 10 quintillion insects alive at any one time um which is just staggering it's incomprehensible we have a pretty good idea of what mammals there are in the world um we still discover one every few years but uh With insects, uh, we can't even publish single species in the scientific literature. We normally have to wait for a revision of that particular group of insects and then just publish them all at once. You know, someone goes out to a rainforest, they could easily find 100 new species. It would be hard to say that the interests of humans could outweigh all of those interests. But again, I don't I don't know. I mean, as somebody who works in pest control, my my duty, I feel, is to, um, you know, defend our ability to live and defend our ability to produce enough food for our species. And right. um, I'm, I'm really trying to discuss the most the most difficult um, for me, the most morally difficult decisions. And um so again, it's it's really the pest species where this discussion gets interesting, right? Right. Because I don't I don't even want to see those uh, wiped out necessarily. I would feel very uncomfortable with um, even disease spreading species going extinct. Um, but I mean, at the same time, they threaten human lives. So I mean, even in their home range, that becomes a very ethically tricky uh, tricky question that. Um, you know, between human lives and these species that cause destruction, um, ultimately I have to go with the people. But, um, you know, if there's a way to sort of transform them so that they don't spread stuff, either through, you know, natural bacteria like Wolbachia or through things like gene drives, um, that solution makes me more comfortable than, you know, wiping out an entire species, no matter how bad it is. I think it's also really important to note that I don't think we can survive without insects right now. I don't think anyone would reasonably say that we could, in the near future, survive without insects. Um, it would be a massive technology shift to be able to go without the immense ecosystem services that insects provide. Um, and they're a really foundational part of a lot of trophic systems. And so we don't really understand what kind of um, welfare impact it may have to eliminate or otherwise like reduce drastically insect numbers um which is why like we're definitely pro being cautious <laughs> about what you might advocate in this regard so um the humane insecticides project is looking at not altering the number of insects that are killed but rather just killing them faster and hopefully better um in a kinder way and even though you know i was employed trying to <laughs> kill these insects, I have a lot of respect for them. So I certainly I certainly believe that they deserve to be here. Like, I don't see humans as being apart from uh, our global ecosystem. Um, we're not separate actors that are operating on nature. We are actors operating within nature. Um, and I think it's always very important to remember that, like, we're not currently in a place where we can be Uh, entirely divested from any sort of natural system. And so it's really important to keep in mind 
um, not only the human suffering that may be involved in an ecosystem collapse, um, but also the non-human animal suffering. And so we like need to move forward, putting a really careful thought into any intervention proposed. This is especially important because some of the more hypothetical ideas people bring up can make the whole thing sound pretty controversial. So for example, some people will argue from a consequentialist perspective that there is so much suffering in nature that it would be best to have less nature and to destroy habitats. And while this may be true in the sense that the suffering would be less in the short term, I think the general public will not see the difference and nuance between doing this out of genuine concern for the suffering of the individuals or doing this out of indifference to the importance of animal lives, which is usually how habitat gets destroyed by humans. And it may also be that while we are advocating for habitat destruction, we are doing this because we are not seeing our own bias towards animals. If you compare habitat destruction, for example, with the suggestion to destroy a human city, a human habitat, even if we have reason to believe that the humans in this city are especially suffering, we would be very reluctant to suggest a solution. I think the lives of most invertebrates contain more suffering than happiness. Therefore, I prefer for fewer total invertebrates to be born, which means that other things being equal, I prefer actions that tend to reduce total invertebrate populations, because it's much harder to know whether other ways that humans impact insects are actually good or bad overall. For example, killing pests on farm fields with insecticides may be very painful to the insects killed, but those insects would also have died in other painful ways later on. It seems the clearest way to prevent a painful death is for an insect not to be born in the first place. While he admits his views are a bit fringe, for Brian, this idea feels pretty much akin to the way we decide to spay or neuter cats and dogs, in order to make sure we don't end up with too many animals that won't be cared for. He also draws a parallel to veganism and the boycotting of factory farms, because he says if we don't support the breeding of these farm animals, we essentially make the same argument that it would be better for them not to have been born at all. To me, this argument starts to feel somewhat less clear when we're talking about animals who live and breed in the wild without our help. Though it does bring up questions about how we can tell whose life contains more suffering or more well-being. From Joe's perspective, insects might be better equipped to feel happiness than other emotions. I honestly, I think that it's more likely that they experience um, joy than pain, mostly uh, just because I feel like reward systems are a little bit more essential to survival for short-term things, like for an organism that might only live, you know, two, three weeks than an avoidance system like that. So if you find a particularly good food source, you know, it sort of pays to keep coming back to the one group of food sources you found. Uh, but they experience both, um, they experience a, a some sort of reward system and some sort of avoidance system at some level. Uh, I don't feel like we can really compare it to ours. I think that they can do both to some extent, although it's not, they're not interpreting the world the same that we do. Yeah, I'm so glad I asked you that question because it's a really new perspective. When I ask most people about any other animal species in the wild experiencing joy or pleasure. There's sort of, so far, been kind of a dismissal of it as unimportant. 
Well, I feel I feel like both are important. Yeah. Um, because insects don't move around in the world randomly. You know, if they're if they're attracted to food or sex or um, you know safe places, there's a reason why they're drawn to those places. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's a reason why they leave certain places, uh, whether it be a high amount of predators, uh, you know, an environment that's bad or, you know, degrading. I feel like understanding their motivations, um, even if they're not necessarily the same as ours, is kind of important to understanding why they do what they do. Insects do have a nervous system and they also live in the same world as we do. So they have also gotten the same kind of reinforcement learning that humans and other animals got by feeling happy if they find food, then they survive. And if they feel scared of fire, then they don't get too close to it and they survive in this way. So there are some evolutionary reasons to suspect that insects might have positive and negative experiences. Whether they have more positive or more negative experiences still seems somewhat unclear to me. If we do suppose they experience things like pleasure and pain, is that enough to consider them conscious? There is a lot of uncertainty about conscious in general. We do not have a good view on what processes in our brains give rise to consciousness. Or even if brains are the only form of matter that can experience consciousness. It could be that if we make an exact computer simulation of all the processes in the brain, at this moment, we would not know whether that computer simulation has consciousness too. You can never be truly sure that anyone besides yourself, if you describe to this particular like Cartesian way of thinking, um, you can never really be sure that anyone besides yourself is actually conscious and not a biological machine. Yeah. Um, and that becomes like a biological machine model seems slightly more plausible for the simpler organisms Right. Um, than for a fellow human, for instance. Mm -hmm. But I think we're giving them far less credit than we ought. They're very complex organisms um, with intricate social structures, and uh, they navigate very difficult and ever-changing worlds. And I think that is uh, a strong indication that they might need to be sentient in order to survive. So where has Joe landed on whether insects can feel pain? He says he's still very uncertain. So different insects are going to be, are going to have different brains. So um, there's this insect called a scale insect, and it's the kind of thing that's almost unrecognizable as an insect because what happens is um, the female will bite a plant, hunker down, and then molt out of like her legs and everything like that. She's literally a digestive system connected to a reproductive tract. And she's not going to have a very kind of rich experience of the world because that's not what she's there to do. Like, she just stays there and literally she just lays eggs for the rest of her life. And um, she doesn't need any real cognitive ability to navigate her world. And this is sort of where the question of pain and the question of pain gets really weird for me. So... One of the things that I know that you were really interested in from our initial conversation was social insects, right? So let's take a honeybee, for example. Um, honeybees are an insect that 
really, really depend on social interaction. Um, they need to know how their nestmates are doing and whether or not they're sick. And I've always sort of thought that there was a certain degree of empathy there. Um, and maybe that's imagined. Maybe I'm anthropomorphizing or imbuing human characteristics on them. But, um, you know, they seem to they seem to be able to tell different siblings apart, recognize self from non-self and stuff like that. But um, the way that honeybees defend their nest is by stinging. And they're kind of famous because they sting once and then they eviscerate themselves. And that sort of defensive reaction is something that is very difficult for me to um, kind of square with the idea that they feel pain. But at the same time, Here's a very social insect that seems like it would potentially have a lot of the um, sort of cognitive abilities that, at least to some degree, that um, have some resemblance to the ones that humans have that let them live in societies. Joe and I also talked about some of our day-to-day -day interactions with insects, and my personal struggle with whether or not it's right to get rid of the scale on our houseplants at home. <laughs> and I think about that and I think like what is the morality behind deciding that the scale should die and that the, the plant should remain healthy in that situation so yeah yeah and that's that's sort of what I struggle with as well right on the level of you know the individual in my everyday life I sort of um, take a, a, a intuitive ethic response like the idea of pain doesn't really factor into how I treat stuff because, you know, I'm not going to go out of my way to hurt anything. Like, that's just who I am and what I see. But at the same time, when I approach my work as an entomologist, I take a very um, utilitarian response to ethics. I think when we talk about large-scale issues, uh, such as global insect suffering, our tendency is to move towards utilitarianism. It's kind of, it feels like the almost the only way to understand just the massive scale of the issues that we're confronting, um, not just in this, but in all kinds of wild animal welfare issues and welfare issues in general. Um, I think I don't necessarily follow the hard utilitarian line all the way down. Right. Um, and our day-to-day -day choices are not always entirely in line with those ethics. I do think it's important to examine these day-to-day -day choices, though. If our choices aren't lining up with our ethics, does that mean we're making the wrong choices? Does it mean we should re-examine our ethical framework? Or do we each just have to figure these things out on a situational basis? I think in a general animal protection movement, the consequentialist welfare-based perspective as well as the rights-based perspective are well represented. But in the wild animal space, I think it's mostly the consequentialist welfare-based view that is overrepresented. And I think this could be bad for the movement in the long run, even from a consequentialist perspective, as it can turn people off by only presenting one view. So like I may spare an individual cockroach, um, even if their life is probably not negative. <laughs> Uh, you know, rather than efficiently crushing them to death, like some people might suggest, I would prefer to let them live. But that... Yeah. Do people suggest that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it it is suggested, and it may be, that may be the higher welfare outcome. Um, 
my personal beliefs are I'm not sure if um, welfare is the only thing that should matter. So there may be some issues of uh, like ending an individual's freedom, even if they're experiencing a net negative life may not be the best choice. And I think generally we should apply sort of a custodial attitude towards most non-human animals um, where we should act in their best interest, even if they approximately would not choose that outcome for themselves. So uh, making sure that your cat gets uh, dental surgery if they need it, um, even though the cat is probably very averse to the whole process of being um, anesthetized and going to surgery and the pain afterwards it's still better for them on in the end. Um, I think the key difference there is that you're ensuring a more positive future for that individual rather than just ending the possibility of a future for that individual altogether. Um, so for me, that's a, that's a difficult line that I walk um, and I'm continuing constantly to update my ideas and um, ask myself these difficult questions as I think we all should. So how do we know what's the right way to help an animal that is so unlike us? Making decisions for our one pet cat seems a lot simpler than making decisions for a quintillion tiny beings whose brains function very differently from the kind of brain we might sort of understand. But if these beings are suffering, shouldn't we try to figure out if there are ways we can help them? What I think is exciting about uh, welfare biology is that there is just this great potential to do a lot of good. There are not many people working on it. And I think that reducing suffering should really be humanity's main endeavor. I think I would want help from another species if I and everyone I knew was suffering horribly. But what if we just seemed like we were suffering horribly from the perspective of a very different animal? What if they didn't completely understand how to meet our needs? I think at the one hand, we compare animals too little to humans, where we're saying, where we're thinking that animals cannot suffer as much as humans, because maybe we think they are less complex or have less complex emotions. So that's why we think they're not so much like humans. But that the other way, we can be biased by saying they are too much like humans. Uh, I think both of these sites are showing animals a great disservice and putting human emotions in the center. And to be less biased in examining animal well-being, we need to take animals serious as individuals. I have a lot of respect for insects as organisms. Um, and even even the pest insects that I that I study, as as I said earlier, these are these are insects that have adapted and are thriving in an environment that um, that is actively trying to kill them. I mean, it comes back to like, until I learn otherwise, I will continue to allow um, invertebrates in my home to continue their lives. <laughs> you know, I think uh, for me, that feels like the safest ethical option um, in my immediate surroundings. My own relationship with insects has tended to resemble something a lot more like Mariana's description of her past as an insect lifeguard than it has resembled Joe's stories about rearing insects and being fascinated with their survival abilities. I've mainly been in favor of leaving insects alone and trying to help the occasional helpless-seeming bug, but I still find myself facing that uncomfortable reality of my own interests sometimes being in conflict with insects. 
It makes a lot of sense to me that insects would be able to feel both pain and pleasure, and that's also what my intuition has always been. I'm not quite sure whether having that intuition should bolster my confidence about this or make me question it more strongly, but I definitely have it. When I find a caterpillar on the sidewalk, I can't help but try to move it to some nearby grass, or even stand guard above it, making sure someone else doesn't step on it for the full eight minutes or so it takes to get across. Is this the best way I could go about helping insects? Do they even need my help? Do you do things like this? And if so, is it just some misdirected form of empathy towards a creature that possesses no emotions to empathize with? Or is this you participating in what Mariana says should be humanity's main endeavor, reducing suffering? Today I want to ask you to take a moment to consider, how much certainty do we need to have before we feel confident that we should help another animal? Thanks so much to Joe Ballinger, Hollis Howe, Mariana Vonderwerf, and Brian Tomasic for sharing their knowledge and insights and helping to make this episode happen. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with your friends and anyone who might be interested in learning more about wild animal welfare. You can find more information about this episode and our guests at wildanimalinitiative.org wildness.